We've published a few stories from Japan over the past few months. If you've listened to them, you'll notice underlying themes of respect, surprise, and enamoration for the Japanese work ethic. It all started with a trip to a textile mill in Kamitonda, a small town in western Japan, where vintage circular knit machines churn out fabric for global sportswear brands. That same trip brought us to a one man show bar in Ginza. There, the owner and head bartender created delicate whiskey highballs for us under a dramatic spotlight that filled the dim, relaxed ambiance. For our latest Tokyo trip, we caught up with the floral artist and photographer tag team AMKK in Minato, who produce raw but vivid plant arrangements that make their way into deserts, snowy plains, and even outer space. Each time, the themes of repetition, dedication, meticulousness, and most certainly, love for their art never went unnoticed. We waxed poetic about the performance that was simply the Japanese at work and that drew our attention to the amazing things they produce. Up until now, we've spoken at length about the importance of passion, hard work, and perseverance in creating quality work, especially in the Japanese context. But what about the other side, the person experiencing? Just as beauty is in the eye of the beholder, quality is in the mind of the perceiver. We can agree there are times to not overthink things and just get lost in the moment, letting everything around you happen spontaneously. But let's say, though, that you weren't interested in just leaving everything to chance. Let's say you wanted to consciously understand quality as unfiltered as it could get. No huge expectations, just a willingness to try something. Believe it or not, our idea of what's good or not is distorted by so many obstacles before we get to the essence of what we're evaluating. But if we could remove those obstacles, could you recognize high quality work, whether or not it figuratively walked up and slapped you in the face? And that's just the chance we got when we visited Shintaro or Shin Suzuki at his Michelin one star sushi restaurant. As you'll soon hear, it's often not just us that decides what's good or not. Sometimes we need a helping hand to cut through the fog and see the light. And that just might be the person serving us. See, in the case of a master craftsman working with sushi, the transaction of quality doesn't get more direct than that, especially if you sit at the counter. There, each bite, never mind each dish, is prepared before you as you witness the master at work. Their laser-sharp focus channeling years of life's work into each morsel, engraving their sense of duty into the fatty channels of the fish, and mixing their honor for the customer into the rice. Or something like that. Right before we begin, it helps to know a bit about the man himself. For one, he knew from the time he was a kid that he wanted to eat sushi every day. As soon as he got to high school, he worked part-time at a small sushi shop for three years before going at it full-time for 12 more. 
and it was only after those 15 years or so of experience that he went independent. After opening one shop of his own tucked away on a third floor about a kilometer away, he moved to his current ground floor location in Nishiyazabu, where he's been for the past six years. In that time, he's refined his craft after visiting hundreds of sushi shops, trying new or popular ones that show up on his radar. But it's not just about putting in the time that makes him a master. Stick around and listen close, because you're about to go back to that night making visited Sushi Shin and reached enlightenment through a quality dining experience. Well, almost. We were running late and a bit unsure of the location as we'd never been before. We got out of the taxi, got our gear, and walked up to the indiscreet sliding front door. Thankfully, it was the right place, and we were ushered inside by one of the staff. We quickly put our bags and gear in a private room, and were quickly made at ease by the interior. Warmly lit, the walls were painted with an earthy tone. The stone floor and tree running through the back counter made the space rooted in natural and traditional Japanese aesthetics. His large wooden countertop, the most noticeable piece of the room, is made of cypress and will be even more noticeable when it ages to a fine auburn. To help it keep, it's been treated with rice oil to guard its surface against the elements, including edible ones such as fish fat. This makes it so that Shin can serve up his creations and guests can take directly from it, meaning the countertop was going to be a powerful point of sharing for the rest of the evening. At the start, I talked about how there are multiple obstacles that stand in our way of understanding quality. The first one is preconceptions. You need to check what you think you know about something at the door. Any amazing experiences or bad memories you could compare them to, any half-baked information you read skimming on Facebook, and any cultural biases that could skew your judgment before you even walk in that door. These are the first to go. Shin certainly changed our perceptions about sushi. While we've tried all kinds of different sushi before, we were still largely under the impression that sushi rice absolutely needed to be served, not ice cold, but cool. And this certainly was the case in the older days, where sanitation considerations meant the ingredients were eaten right away and needed to be kept cold to prevent spoilage. But like many sushi chefs of the newer generation, Shin serves his sushi warmer at body temperature and removes his prepared ingredients from the fridge to let them warm up naturally to match his rice. When it's time to serve, he grabs a small palmful of rice from his double boiler which keeps the rice at a high workable temperature without burning it. He then takes the netta, or the top part of the rice, and presses it with the rice into the grip of his hand, alternating between light squeezes with his left and presses with middle finger of his right. He does this while smoothly rotating the sushi piece to ensure a tight, round pack. A light dab of sauce from his homemade sable hair brushes, and it's done. He places the finished piece on the counter, and it's ready to be eaten. I flip the finished piece on its side, gripping the sushi with three fingers. 
I feel the firm, springy, and slightly sticky rice underside with the middle, the unique texture of the netta with my thumb, and the seam where the two ingredients meet with my index. One last light dip in soy sauce, and then it's gone in an instant. Sheen urges us to eat every piece right away as it's placed in front of us. But some of us prefer to wait until everyone had their piece, thinking it polite at first. The first few courses went by this way with effortless efficiency, even though Shin had to play a bit of catch up as we fell a bit behind schedule. We obviously felt bad, but he never showed even the slightest annoyance, even as we mic'd him up, shot around his kitchen, and as I fumbled with my Japanese. All while he was preparing an over 20 piece omakase course for a party of eight. And his staff were forgiving too. I remember one of our team members accidentally stepped into the private room with his shoes on because, God damn it, Cody. But their grace and warmth wasn't just limited to our experience. A quick look at the reviews of his restaurant in English and Japanese confirms the hospitality at Sushi Shin. But why does this matter? Shouldn't you, well, be expected to be treated well when you're paying a handsome price for front row seats at the chef's table? Not necessarily so if you've got some acclaim under your belt and a nod from the Michelin Guide. And this is where we run into the second obstacle that gets in our way of appreciating some of the finer things. Fear. Now, fear is something we can certainly create in ourselves with those preconceptions I just mentioned, especially if we've had a bad experience with lesser quality sushi in the past. But fear can also come surprisingly from the people serving us. It seems ridiculous to have to say this, but when you're buying and literally consuming someone else's work, intimidation by that person can easily spoil our perception of quality, no matter how high it actually is. To quote an extreme example, I have a friend who will call Terry for this story. He went to the fabled Tsukibayashi Jiro, which has had a Michelin three-star rating for 10 consecutive years. This sushi shop is owned and operated by the now internet famous Jiro Ono. At 92 years old and having started making sushi since he was only nine, he's often referred to as a sushi god. With his lifelong dedication to sushi, you might understand why the tension in the dining room is as high as the tension in the kitchen. Here's Terry's recount of his memorable, pricey, delicious, and ultimately very stressful lunchtime. Okay, so here's the deal. If you choose to go when nobody else is there, you will have a minimum of three people, one of whom is a living national treasure staring at you, waiting for the second that you eat a piece of sushi. Now this creates tons of pressure for you to eat fast and not enjoy the dining experience. On the other hand, if you go when everybody else is there, you will A, have a harder time making a reservation, and B, will not get special super duper focused attention and ridicule. Pick your poison. Now, this is not a snarky attempt to throw shade, but to bring the human factor back into perspective. Before beginning the service, Jiro-san Yoshikazu, who is the sous chef and heir apparent to his father's restaurant and legacy, asked Terry if there was anything he could not eat. Now this gave him some pause. Why? Terry has had horrific experiences with uni, or sea urchin, which he describes as, and I quote, Spewing like Linda Blair from The Exorcist, Montezuma's revenge out the other end, and everything, everything in between. In between. 
As he contemplated whether or not to say no to uni prepared by a legend, Yoshikazu said to the other chefs, Oh geez, he's a gaijin that doesn't know any of the fish. Now, for your information, gaijin means foreigner and is banned from national television like we would any racial epithet. Now, no one ever questions a respect for hard work, especially when it produces something noteworthy or even amazing. But should we prostrate ourselves before gods, even sushi gods, at the cost of a modest level of respect? Imagine getting insulted to your face as you get ready to pay $375 for lunch on a Monday. Just something to think about. So after a rocky start, I began to feel more comfortable with the surroundings and the pieces started to get really good. However, contrary to what Anthony Bourdain said about the restaurant on no reservations, nothing made me think, oh my God, I could die now and it would be okay, right? So the uni came, I took a deep breath, said a small prayer, and I ate it. Somehow I was expecting it to, you know, be the best uni in the world. Like, to taste like the love child of golden stardust and fluffy clouds, you know, cultivated in the place where rainbows are born or something like that. It tasted like sea urchin. It has to be mentioned that there are traditional establishments in Japan that are still apprehensive or even downright hostile to foreigners, even those that speak Japanese like Terry. Obviously, Sushishin is not one of those places, but it's not exactly come one, come all, and it doesn't coddle guests either. In another interview, Shin was asked how he would go about spreading sushi culture around the world. His response? He talked about the balance of compromising on some aspects while staunchly protecting others. He's made an effort to make the atmosphere more accessible to non-Japanese speakers with an English drinks menu and English speaking staff. He also ensures to educate newcomers on sushi culture in the process. He cites the examples of teaching them to eat sashimi with chopsticks, but eat sushi with fingers. He also politely declines guests who can't handle uncooked fish because it's, you know, sushi. Shin didn't fit my initial image of a gaunt, bespectacled man in his 50s or 60s. And he does mention how he didn't want to grow facial hair when he was younger, for fear of fulfilling the stereotype of many sushi chefs. There certainly aren't many like Shin, and he cites strict old-fashioned rules like only having a buzz cut and absolutely no tanning as some of the barriers to new talent entering the trade. At 45, Shin looks young and healthy for the amount of labor he puts in, which is often enough to make his back and knees ache from all the standing. He's got strong features, and with his rebellious stubble, he looks the part of a boss, especially compared to his baby-faced apprentices, who are both highly skilled men in their own right, who are fast approaching 30. Like Shin and his waitstaff, they help to keep the quality of the experience accessible too. We all remember Koji, the chubby-cheeked apprentice with glasses was always smiling and laughing with us while still running a tight ship under Shin's watchful eye. Now Shin doesn't speak a lot of English, but he makes the effort where he can. For instance, there was this one piece of fish with a pinkish white hue that everyone liked, and he said what I heard was, 
terufishu. A Google search for tailfish sushi returned what I'd been looking for instead. We'd been eating tilefish, or amadai, a fish that's as rich as it is pricey. Yet, for the remainder of our meal, Shin's vast knowledge came to us via two of our fellow guests who also lent insights of their own. Through translated conversations, we now know that with sushi, it's no longer so black and white about freshness being the standard for greatness. Some fish are best eaten fresh, and other large species like tuna need to be aged to bring out their full flavor. It isn't necessarily the shortest wait from a fish's time of death to when it's eaten that decides how good it is. And if you recall, some of us thought we should wait for everyone to get their serving of sushi before eating. But we were wrong to do that, even though we thought it was rude not to wait. Why? Because sushi is meant to be enjoyed at its peak level of tasty, which is right when it's served. And the rice part of sushi is packed differently to be picked up by chopsticks or fingers. And fingers are the implement of choice at sushi shin, which means it doesn't crumble when it's being handled. But if you allow it to rest on the counter for too long, it not only loses its warmth, texture, and flavor, but the rice also springs back and picks up more air, making it harder to handle. And nothing makes you look more like a rookie than leaving behind a dipping dish full of rice. After all is said and done, it's finally here where Shin, his team, and his restaurant have done all they can. With a minimal decor, quiet atmosphere, and attentive service, they've kept your mind as uncluttered as possible. You've now come to your last and most personal obstacle, yourself. This is where you put your phone away, not thinking about what you just had or what's coming next. You clear your palate if you have to, look at your sushi, dial in, and open wide. You're now as close to being in direct contact with the highest quality Shin can provide. So, how does it taste? True to his particular style of Edomaya sushi, it was about simple, fresh flavors, slightly boosted with aging, marinades, mild sauces, or a hint of salt. He wasn't lashing us with overly complex or expansive flavors. Many of the dishes we had were variations or derivatives of the same food served together so that we could better appreciate the subtle differences. Although our palates and vocabulary aren't yet up to the task of explaining how each different fish tastes, we could obviously recognize the different textures and familiar flavors of favorites like sweet shrimp, eel, and uni. Now, not all of them will sound the most appetizing to your ears, but trust me, any ingredient that's prepared well can taste amazing. We're talking two different kinds of uni, one lighter, one darker. Scallops serve both raw and seared. Abalone with its own liver, shrimp with its own brain, and tuna with meat taken from the middle, the closest to the fin, and the closest to the bone, each one stronger or milder. All of these flavors blended well with the marinades and light sauces Shin is known for, as well as the two types of salt he uses, including a baked variety from Korea. And actually, there was one dish that forced me to overcome all of those obstacles we just talked about, of preconception, of fear, of distraction. 
You ever heard of cod milt? It sounds almost as benign and even mouthwatering as the words tuna melt. But if you Google what cod milt is, it's fish semen. Or if you prefer something easier on the ears, shirako. That means white children. To be honest, it scared me. But, you know, second night in Tokyo, cod semen for the first time, a sushi master made it, and everybody's trying it? Well, sekaku dakara. Much like fish roe, the flavor is all found in a liquid contained inside a thin, glossy membrane that releases the contents when ruptured. I know, I was extra focused when it happened. It was smooth, creamy, slightly salty, and not fishy in the least, and not nearly as terrible as it sounded. It was cold, but also very savory and rich. It was the first and best cod semen I'd ever had. You know what, if given the chance, I'd try it again, I, I think. Our last course was a sort of pseudo-dessert. It was a spongy egg cake, kind of like Castella, but with a sweet savory blend from the yam flour and shrimp paste. I liked it so much, I had seconds. After a little more chatting, it was time to go. We said goodbye to Shin, his apprentices, and his staff before they walked us to the door. We're highly indebted to our friend Julia Huang and her friend Abby, a bilingual foodie, sushi connoisseurs, and friend of Shin. Because of them, we ended up with stomachs full of the best sushi we'd had and a head full of insight and memories we might not have had otherwise. It put everything in perspective and reminded us that even for a sushi master, there are actually more important things than reaching perfection. Oh, well, I don't want a life that's nothing but sushi. I have a family. I need to have fun too. I have friends. Sushi is just one of those things. So I, since I left high school, I've been doing this for a very long time. So I don't want it to be just that. There's a lot of things I want to do, but I don't have a lot of time to do it once you factor in work. And I'm 45 now, so half my life's gone, really. Well, I'm probably going to die early. I can't make it to 90. So really, I plan to die at 75. I know you can't live long doing this type of work. That means 20 more years of work, 10 years to have fun, and then I'll die. 